What's up everyone and welcome into the Buffalo Sports Collective. It is April 18th, 2022. Phil, happy day after Easter. I know we're recording on Easter, but uh, how was your long weekend? And I guess it wasn't long because you said you work retail, so you had to work Friday. Yeah, I worked uh, Friday and Saturday, so it was a short weekend for me. (laughs) Oh, even worse, even worse. (laughs) But I had a lovely, mildly cold Sunday. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, just before we started recording, I had to uh, evict a snake that we found in my basement, and uh, that was fun. That was, uh, I grabbed a uh, a bowl, grabbed a piece of cardboard, put the bowl over top of the snake, slid the bowl on top of the cardboard, and then slowly released it outside. Don't know how it got inside, so it's a little concerning, and that's a, that's an FPP. That's a future Patrick problem for everybody that doesn't know the abbreviation. <laughs> At least the uh, snake's keeping things lively for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I love snakes outside. You you keep the insects down. Just uh, there's no insects inside my house, so no reason to come inside. But if you want to keep up to date with this riveting snake story and how PK has, you know, evicted more snakes from his house, remember you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Buffalo Sports Collective and on Twitter at Buffalo Sports Co. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at buffalosportscollective.com and remember to check for our time breakdowns in the description of our episode. So, Phil... Before we dive into the game, we had some defensemen come back, and of course, we said it, it was going to happen. It was going to happen on Friday because our episodes are recorded Thursday night, put out Friday. So Nick Weiss and Justin Martin were added back to the defense core, but we did lose another defenseman. Ethan O'Connor was put on the COVID list, so hopefully he is no symptoms and getting back healthy for the playoff push. And I guess I shouldn't say playoff push because they're in the playoffs, but the, the playoff, you know, games that are coming up but uh it'll be nice to have a full team back as healthy as they can be yeah especially on the defense i think they were looking just a little bit off the last couple of games i know vince hasn't been you know quite 100 percent himself either but i think the defense in front of him was not helping him very much obviously that last game for against new york in general was just brutal throughout the entire team but i think the defense was just you could tell they were missing players and other players trying to step in were doing the best they could but just it's different when you have those guys out there that not only do you know, you know, how good they are, but the team knows how to play with Weiss and Martin a lot more than some of these other guys that were trying to step in. So when the team just has that chemistry, you can feed off each other, especially on defense, you kind of, you know, know how the other players are going to react when you're passing players off and moving things around, shifting the defense. I think it's just easier when you have those guys that are out there day in, day out with you than trying to plug and play a brand new player into that system. So great to see them back. Yeah, they were back in full force. This was the Buffalo Bandits that we've been looking for for the past two games. I don't know what team was out on the field the last two games, but it wasn't the Buffalo Bandits we're used to. They doubled up Georgia 18-9. to Goals by Byrne, Fields, and Coutier all had hat-tricks. Nanakoke and Smith each added a pair, and then McKay, Priolo, Spanger, Buchanan, and Frazier each had one. So if you do the total there, 10 guys scored in this one. It's just a great game. All but four players had a point in this one, which is another great accomplishment that came out in force. They wanted to prove a point, and you could tell, definitely tell right off the get-go that the Bandits were back and, and ready to prove a point that, hey, we're still the best team in the league. Vince made 28 saves. The shots were 65-37 to 37 in favor of the Bandits. I knew it was going to be lopsided. I did not know it was going to be that lopsided. The face-offs, though, did go in favor of the Swarmed, 18-13. to 13. The Bandits were 3 for 4 on the power play. The Swarm were 0 for 3. It seems like the special team has been figured out for this season. And this team is hitting 
all the notes perfectly just in time. And with this win, Phil, they clinched top seed in the entire playoffs. So no matter what, as long as they keep winning, the championship is going through bandit land. We kind of mentioned this was going to be a huge get right game. And to me, I think it was even more important, again, just to have that statement game across the league, just kind of showing, you know, we still are number one. We may have lost two games back to back. The last game they played did not look like a top team in the league. But this one kind of once again just solidified that, you know, Georgia was a decent team coming into this game and a team, you know, that had everything to fight for. They were home and Bandits just absolutely steamrolled right over him. And it was a little shaky to start. The first was only 3-2 and then Georgia kind of got on a, the only run I think they would really have. But then the Bandits came back in full force and just absolutely crushed them the rest of the game. So like you said, this is a team that we kind of have come to know all season, and it was great to see the offense firing on all cylinders and just looked like they were back in form. And the defense, I think, was even more important and even more impressive than Vince. I mean, holding the opposing team to only 37 shots. I mean, Vince had to make a few good saves here and there, but for the most part, I think the defense did an absolutely incredible job limiting what they needed to for the Swarm offense. Yeah, I'll start with the defense. I, I, well, I'll start with Vince. I thought Vince would have had a very nice bounce back game, but I think it was more important that the the players in front of them, be in front of him, had a bounce back game. And yes, I think Nick Nick Weiss and Justin Martin being a part of that defensive core definitely helped, especially when you're facing a guy like Dial Thompson and Shane Jackson. Jackson only had two points. Thompson only had six. So I know only six, but when you're facing Lyle Thompson, one of the top scorers in the league, he's number seven in scoring right now in the entire league, having him only get six points, one goal, five assists, I think shutting those two guys down, which is pretty much their entire offense, you shut the whole offensive scheme down there. And, you know, he only, he had 11 shots and only one went in. So that's credit to the defense, not letting him get any good opportunities and that's credit to Mad Vince for shutting him down so I think the defense gets a huge huge credit here for if if this defense can keep opponents in single digits there's no way any team in this league can beat them whatsoever there's there's just no opportunity the the, the offense for the Buffalo Bandits is just too good if your defense is you know keeping opponents in single digits it, it's it's a no-brainer the Buffalo Bandits are going to come out victorious and that's something we've seen all year. You know, I mean, that's that's just how the Bandits MO has been. I mean, they've been averaging up over 14 goals a game. And at the same time, their defense usually holds teams under 10 for a little bit there. It's been a little bit more shaky and the defense has been allowing a little bit more. Vince has been allowing a little bit more. But exactly what you just said, I mean, if they can hold teams to seven, eight, nine goals, I just don't see any team in the league being able to hang with them because the Bandits offense just I just don't see them ever putting up under 10 goals so I mean that's pretty much a guaranteed win when your defense can come out and do that and like you said with Thompson it's not only just the the six points it's the one goal that is really important like he's going to get his assist that's fine but keeping him off the score sheet as far as goals go I know he got one but you know making sure he doesn't get three four or five goals that's not only difficult to do but really impressive when you can hold him just one and that was a huge key to the game and the other big key was their their power play and their penalty kill. I mean, they have the best penalty kill in the entire league and you put up 75% on them when they're normally holding teams only 33%. So that's just another testament to how impressive this bandits offense is. Yeah, 100%. I mean, the special teams have been figured out. I, I still remember way back in December, January, we we're like, why is this pen- power play just, you know, they're the top 
scoring team in the league. Why can't they figure out this power play? And man, they they definitely figured it out. The penalty kill came back, you know, very nice. But I think just touching on the point which you brought up last last episode, where do not let Lyle Thompson end up like you let Jeff Teat the game before. And I think they played. Uh, Lyle Thompson perfectly where hey you can get a a few assists here you can score one goal but we're not going to let what happened with Jeff Teat happen here with Lyle Thompson which it very much could have been because of the talents of Lyle Thompson and I think the defense needs to have a huge round of applause in this one just because of their turnaround from you know just last game to this one the the improvement that we saw out of the floor from the get-go is just you know top-notch and what's amazing is Georgia actually had the lead three separate times in this one. They were up one nothing, then they were up four to three, and then they were up again five to four. I completely forgot about that by the end of the game, where Georgia actually had the lead in the second quarter. It's, it's something that you know got past me. It's like, oh yeah, that that's true. It was close at one point, and this is like vintage Buffalo Bandits, where hey, we'll keep it close, keep it close, keep it close, and then boom, out of nowhere, our offense just goes on like an eight straight goal streak, <laughs> and it's just you know blowing at, blowing the opponents out of the water. Yeah, I think the announcers have mentioned it a few times. I think something that was not confusing, but a little shocking to me was that the Bandits wanted it so much more than Georgia. I mean, I thought Georgia would come out with a little bit more fight in this one. 100%. And like you said, like they they were winning early on and they, they were, you know, hanging in there early on. But I feel like they gave up pretty quickly. I know the Bandits had a couple huge runs there, but Georgia just did not seem they kind of seemed like the Bandits did the game before against New York. Like Georgia just did not seem in it and they just they did not seem like they were fighting all that hard and it was just strange. I know the Bandits obviously came in with a huge chip on their shoulder. They really wanted to lock up that number 1 seed, get everything out of the way, but to see the Bandits come out as strong and as intense as they did and then to see Georgia just kind of fold and kind of fall over and just kind of almost looked like they just gave up. It was just a little strange to see when Georgia has so much to fight for trying to get into playoffs. And then also they were at home. So it was just, it was a little weird um, emotionally, I guess, seeing the bandits just come out that much harder than Georgia. I mean, even the the announcers kind of mentioned <laughs> the, uh, you know, we'll say turning point of the game, but just showing the emotion that the bandits had going into this one with what I would say is, arguably one of the best goals of the year when Ian McKay came flying out of the penalty box, leveled the guy, Great picked play. up the yep. uh, loose ball, just ran down and scored. I mean, what <laughs> what a play, what a hit, and just, uh, just I mean, again, just shows the intensity that the Bayments came into this game with. Yeah, I, we can talk about the offense now because 18 goals is just incredible. It's the second time this year that they did it, but in that game, you had to have overtime to get 18 goals, but I think... You mentioned it. Uh, I'm tooting your horn a lot here, Phil. You mentioned this on the last episode that you haven't seen Nanakoke and Coutier do much on the offensive end the last few games. They both came out, you know, gung ho. And I thought this was Kluch's best game in this one. He had three goals, five assists for eight points. And then Nanakoke had two goals, three assists for five points. Getting those two guys going and saying, hey, you're just as important to this offense as everybody else going into the playoff run. I, I think it's huge to, you know, even uh, Buchanan, who is like that quiet assassin on the offensive end, one goal, four assists, five points. I, I think it was a huge, like you said, get right game, uh, both on the defensive end and on the offensive end. But getting those guys that had been, I don't even know if you want to call them slumps, but less involved in the offense in this game where it's just like, hey, we got 18 goals. Let's get these guys involved. Let's let's spread the ball around. And it, it seemed to pay it off. And I, I'm very... My confidence was not shaken, but the alerts were up about, hey, 
New York just beat you. Colorado just beat you. You know, your your offense and your defense are looking a little rough. Vince is looking a little rough. And you completely nailed that this was a huge get right game for all three aspects of this game. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it's a little early to be talking about our, our next preview, but I think the next game is going to be very weird. I mean, yes, playoffs are locked for both the Bandits and Toronto Rock. So there's nothing that that game like that game means nothing to either team. So I think it's going to be very strange as to how both teams kind of want to play it, because I can't imagine either team wants to, you know, take any injuries going into playoffs. So I don't know. I just I have no idea what to expect from that game. But this game was massive for the Bandits. And I mean, for them to be able to clinch um, that, you know, top seed home for playoffs throughout the entire playoffs as long as it you know as long as they keep winning and the championship goes through buffalo which is just a huge thing for this team i think they love playing in bandit land i think it means a lot to them it means obviously a lot to the fans so to have them clinch that number one seed with one week to go i mean we'll see how that next week shakes out what Tavares ends up wanting to do with kind of resting players but dane smith is you know very close to some milestones vince is very close to milestones so we'll have to see what they decide to do but this was a massive massive win for the bandits which is Tough to say when you're 14 and three that uh, a game this late in the season is a massive win. But again, it was a good get right game. And I think it put them right back on, you know, league notice that this team is just that legit and that this is the team to beat in the playoffs. Yeah, this is the first team with five thirty goal scorers and Dane Smith, you know, uh, Josh Byrne, Chase Frazier, Connor Fields and Tehoka Nanako just scored his 30th this last week, too. So I, I think this is a testament that it's not just, yes, Dane Smith and Josh Byrne are having incredible seasons, but this team would not be the team it is without those secondary third third dairy pieces, if you want to call them third dairy. But yeah, it's, 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 I completely agree without getting into it too much next week. Buffalo has nothing to play for. Toronto has nothing to play for. Both of their seeds are locked up. Nothing's going to change between now and when they play on the 30th. So like you said, it's going to be very interesting to see. Dane Smith is three points away from breaking his own record. Josh Burns, four points away from getting 100. So there are some milestone possibilities out there. Like you said, you know, Vince is up for some awards too. It's it's going to be a very interesting game. It's fan appreciation night. So you, you want to say that these guys want to come out there and win the game in front of Bandit Land. You want to t- defeat the Toronto Rock. But like you said, what is the game plan going in? How long is, is Johnny T going to keep out his starters? Or is he going to play all his starters? Or is he going to rest some starters? Like, What's the plan going in? Is he going to give them the first half and say, hey, you got the first half to set these records, whatever you want to do, you know, break whatever records you can in this first half, and then you're pulled it out because the championship is more important than your individual records. And I think the player, players that, yes, I mean, Dane Smith has said it all year long that, yes, all these records are great, but I want that championship. So I think the players would agree. It's nice to have that side award and be able to put it on your mantle, but I think a title is more important to most of these players, especially the 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 players coming in from the PLL that just won the championship and from the players that were left over from 2019 when they lost the championship. So it'll be very interesting. Like you said, what does Johnny T do next week? But we have plenty of time to talk about that soon. And I believe even with everything that kind of shook out this last weekend, I think if the standings were to hold right now into next week, the bandits would play Georgia in the first round. So we, we could have gotten a little bit of a, interesting preview of what the bandits first round could look like but instead of being at georgia it'll be home against possibly the same team that you just beat 18 to 9 so hopefully 
if that is how, you know, that first round shakes out, hopefully the Bandits don't get too far in over their heads, realizing that they just doubled up this team not too long ago. I mean, it, it could backfire a little bit, but I think that after these last two losses that they took back to back, I think this team is finally back on track. I mean, I know it was only two losses, so it's not like it took them a long time to get back on track. But like we said, I think this was a huge get right game. I think they are dialed in and focused and ready for playoffs. So let's dive into some milestones before we get into our BSC update. Buchanan finally got his 300th assist. He was assistless last game with New York, but he had four in this one. So he is up to 303 career assists. So congrats to him. Matt Vince, over 9,000 saves for his career now. He just crossed that milestone this last game. Just an incredible career. He's still the top goalie in all of NLL, you know, this year and, you know, in the history of the, in the league. Dane Smith is only three points away from breaking his own record, Phil. Three. Incredible. The last time he had less than three points in a game was January of 2017. So I think that record, as long as Johnny T is going to let him in there, it's going to be falling. It, he's he's going to get it. And then Josh Byrne had his 400th career shot. So congrats to all of them. All three of them on breaking their milestones and career accomplishments. It's a huge accomplishment for all of them. Yeah, it's just a uh, record-breaking season. I mean, it's it's kind of easy to say when your team is doing this well that you're going to see a lot of these, and a lot of these you know, players kind of just rack up these points and these assists, and when you're having a season like they are, especially on the offensive side, I mean, the offense is just playing so incredible that a lot of these you know individual milestones for their careers as far as offensive points go and like assists and shots and goals, they kind of add up pretty quickly when your team's looking this good, and Vince with 9,000 saves. I mean, that's just, that's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of playtime that he's got underneath him. Yeah, and <laughs> it's, it's someone that I am not uncomfortable having in my net for uh playoffs. So glad he's with the not team. Not at all. Yeah. So we'll get into our BSC update now. I am up 21, 21.9 to 18, 20.68. Phil, uh, you want to explain what happened there? Cause I am up over 300 points now. I don't have a clue, if we're being honest. I feel like both most of my uh, players have been doing pretty good. Maybe maybe the Bisons are starting to really hurt me already, which is great, because that's a long season. So That's that's exactly what's happening right now. <laughs> but, uh, we will get to that in just a second. For the Bandits, Smith got you 13, Coutier got you 14.5, Nanako got you 8, McKay got you 4.5, Spanger got you 4.5 for 44.5. Five and then for me, Josh Byrne thirteen and a half. Frazier got me six and a half. Fields with his hat trick got me thirteen. Priolo got me seven. Brownell got me four and a half. So that equaled forty four and a half. So we tied this week in Banditsville, and that's the that's the the one that you've been beating me in. So that probably hurt <laughs> you just a hair. But Phil, yeah, like we said, next week is the bye week. The like we said, the, the Bandits are locked in number one. Toronto's locked in number two. So it's pretty much just figuring out the seating and who Buffalo is going to be playing in the first round. So that could be determined next week. I, I, it won't be determined next week, but you can help get a better understanding next week when Georgia has their game because they have still two more games in hand that they have to be playing. So you, you're going to want to be scoreboard watching in the off in the off week for the Buffalo Bandits. But I think there it's also a nice week to have off. So the guys that just got back from injuries can nurse any injuries they're going in with. Ethan O'Connor can hopefully come back as well. Adler gets another week of rest as well. So you can come in, get healthier. And then I think that's another reason why getting this win this week was so huge that the Toronto game, you can rest any guys that you need to, to be fully healthy as possible going into playoffs. Yeah, I think it'll be 
it's like you said, it's pretty much a perfect time to get some rest in, especially because I don't think you necessarily want the bye week to be the week before playoffs. I think you want to make sure your guys are out there at least playing a little bit. Uh, but I mean, so many of these players have played together for so long now that I don't even think a week off would really hurt. But I think the rest this late in the season is huge for the teams. Like you said, locking it in and going into that week of rest with, you know, just knowing that everything's pretty much good to go and you're ready for playoffs. And it's just even mentally, I think that's big. They can just kind of I don't want to say relax because that's not a great way to go into playoffs, but I think they yeah, can get just, their mindset ready for playoffs. Right. Yeah. You can just kind of shift your focus away from the season and really start just having your eye on that championship without anything else to really worry about. So it's a, it's a good time to get dialed in and just really focused on playoffs so they can just kind of put the season behind them at this point. So we will update you on any injury front news that we find out, but the bandits are going on by, so you won't get a preview next week, which is going to be a little bit weird, but we will scoreboard watch so we can kind of let you guys know what, you know, you know, teams you're supposed to be watching as seeding becomes more finalized, but we will move on to the Buffalo Sabres now. Phil, we got three games to go over, and uh, the first one's not as fun to go over as the next two. They lost Thursday against St. Louis, 6-2. to two. The only goals were scored by Asplett and Tuck. Anderson made 22 of 27 saves. The sh- uh, Blues outshot the Sabres 37-28 in this one. I feel like this game, as far as just, you know, the score goes, it really doesn't show how they played. I think the Sabres really outplayed the Blues for most of this game. I think it was more a battle of goaltenders and Anderson just did not stand up to Binghamton. I think that St. Louis's goalie just played that much better. And he was really the only reason that St. Louis was able to stay in this one. I think the Sabres actually really played well against again, another top team. I think they outplayed the blues overall, but just the scoreboard does not show it. Yeah, I completely agree with this one. I mean, Tarasenko definitely got the best of the Buffalo Sabres in this one with his hat trick and, it was it was it was a game where, like you said, the the score didn't indicate how the Buffalo Sabers played. I thought, you know, they got a few bad breaks on their end, and it it was nice to see the Buffalo Sabers come out and score first. It was one one after the first period, and then you know, Sad came down and scored, and then Tuck scored right back. So you were two two going in early on in the second period against a top tier team that's going into the playoffs. So the compete was there. It's just. You just ran into a buzzsaw where, you know, Blues scored the next four goals to take it 6-2. to two. And it was, I guess the one good point about this one is Owen Power does not look outmatched in this one whatsoever. He had a nice play where he joined the rush and then, you know, found Alex Tuck wide open and Alex Tuck fed it to, uh, you know, shot it right past the goalie. It was, it was a beautiful shot too. So I think it was a, it was a nice game where, yes, they got the doors blown off, but the score doesn't indicate how they actually played. And I, I just want to address the the defensive core. If that's your top six moving forward with Bryson and Fitzgerald as your five six, I am perfectly okay with what this top six is. I mean, you, you didn't have Samuelson in this one, so sub out him with with Butcher. But if that's your six in in going forward, I'm very pleased with what top six on your defensive core is. Yeah, I mean, we talked about it last episode that, you know, that defensive core is really looking very solid moving forward. I think most of this team, honestly, is. I think they're missing a little bit on offense, but the guys they even have on offense, I think that a lot of them are just underdeveloped, and most of them are just so young still that you're just kind of waiting for them to take that next step like Tage Thompson did this season in his fourth year in the NHL. I think a lot of those forwards, they're just not there yet, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're 
the wrong pieces or the wrong players. It's just something that would just take a little bit longer than maybe most Sabres fans would uh, would like it to take. But I think the team, honestly, just as it is, I mean, they're definitely missing a few players. And then again, maybe just that overall number one standout goalie. But outside of that, I think this team is looking very solid moving forward and looking into the future. 100% into the future they went. They faced Philly at home. They won 4-3 to Saturday. Goals by Henestroza, Akposo, Tage Thompson, and Darlene Anderson made 18 of 21 saves. And the Buffalo Sabres outshot Philly 29-21 to in the first of the back-to-back games with Philly. Yeah, this was a nice one to see. Again, I mean, this is one of the few times we've been able to say recently that the Sabres are playing an easier team. I mean, Philly is also under 500, even has a worse record than the Sabres. So it was one of those games where, I don't know, like neither team is really playing for much other than, you know, their own kind of pride. But it was good to see the Sabres, you know, win a game like this. I mean, these are the kind of games that I think at this point in the season, especially after the March they had and even into April here, that we kind of expect the Sabres to win these games at this point just because they've been playing so well. And I don't think this one was any different. I mean, like you said, out shooting Philly 29-21 after out shooting the Blues 37-28. I think we're just really seeing this team start to gel and really just kind of take form. And it was a good good one to win and nice to see Hinnestroza back in that goal column. It was nice also to see that second period where they went down into the second period, down 2 nothing. they tied it. Then they went back down again, 3-2, but then they scored about a minute and a half later with Vinny Hinnestroza tying at 3-3, and then Tage Thompson with about two minutes left in the second period, and then they just shut down the third period. But uh, in this one, I, I think... It, it's fun to make note of this because, uh, you know, he's the he's the rookie coming in. He's only played in three games. But Owen Power got over four minutes of penalty kill time. And, you know, yes, Philly is one of the teams that's struggling this year. They don't have a ton of firepower. They just traded Claude Giroux, their captain, their lead goals, or points producer. But having him play over four minutes, the lead guy on defensive end playing the most penalty kill minutes having him out there and Granado has done this in the past where he's just throwing his his young guys out there and saying hey show me what you got prove that you can earn these minutes moving forward and it, Philly went 0 for 4 on the power play or then the power play and Owen Power was one of the big reasons that they were shut out on the power play opportunities and I he's just so composed back there for a 19 year old and just thinking this is only his third game in the league he's just going to keep getting better and better and better moving forward and that defensive end has such high skill and such potential back there to be a top six, one of the top best top six defensive course in the entire league moving forward. And they're so young. I mean, again, yes. we just kind of talked about the offense having to, you know, kind of slowly develop and take steps forward. Darlene's still only 22. Samuelson's very long, young. Fitzgerald's very young. A lot of these players have, you know, hardly any NHL professional time underneath them. So this defensive core can continue to get better even Yoki Haru is still pretty young so they really don't have you know that old veteran other than Pezik I mean he's not playing right now so they really don't have that old veteran kind of presence on their defense I mean most of them are very young which is in my eyes good I mean I think it's nice that they're growing together and will just continue to you know develop and learn from each other but I think it's great to see that this defensive core can only get better and as far as power goes, I mean, seeing him already up in the 22, 23 minutes a game range is pretty insane. But also to see that Granada, like you said, is just kind of throwing him to the fire. But I like it because you're not making playoffs this year. So what do you have to lose? Like, give this guy, 
you know, top line minutes, give him, you know, penalty kill minutes and just see what he's got and let him kind of trial by fire and just let him learn, you know, from his own mistakes, let him learn from, you know, seeing what the NHL is all about. And like you said, so far, he's really shown, you know, just his potential and shown that for a 19 year old kid, like you said, he's very composed. He looks really good. And I think he's already learning a lot and he's learning at a fast rate. But at the same time, it does not seem like there's too, too many obvious gaps in his game that he's really showing. It's also amazing when you see Darlene and Owen Power on the same line when they get stuck out there on line changes every once in a while, too, because Darlene's still playing the right side. When you see them out in the ice, those opportunities, you just think, man, that could be an insane one-two combo on your top line. But it's like, ah, you got to space those out. I love seeing Samuelson with Darlene and uh, Yoki Haru is coming alive being next to Power. So I love those two matchups, but you're just thinking, man, if if there ever needs to be a time where you're playing four on four or three on four or something like that. And you can put Darlene with power. That is terrifying. But the other, uh, the other team that you're facing, but also before we move on, Akposo scoring 20, congrats to him. I was, I was hoping that he was going to get to 20. He now has the most goals he's ever had with, on with wearing a Buffalo Sabres uniform. So congrats to him getting a 20 is a huge accomplishment. And, you know, just piling on those statistics in his rebound year. It's, it's great to see. Yeah, especially for, I mean, there's no true captain of this team, but I guess we'll say, you know, you're one of your unofficial. Yeah, one of your unofficial captains or your leaders of this team. I know people just based on his contract, you know, a lot of fans were really down on him, especially after he came in, you know, kind of having a great season. And then he came in for so much money and really just has not lived up to it. But it's great to see that kind of with the pressure off, he's been able to blossom a little bit more and just be one of those great leaders on the team, especially for a lot of these young guys. I think he's someone that they really look up to. And I think he is a very good leader on a, you know, team that's not making playoffs for the 11th straight year. So I think he's been able to keep things very composed. I think the younger guys are learning a lot from him. And I think it's great to see that he was able to get 20 goals this year. So Sunday, five o'clock, they were in Philly this time. They did not stop them. It did not stop them from doing exactly what they just did on Friday or I'm sorry, Saturday. They won five to three Thompson and Olaf both had two goals apiece. And then Bjork, where has he been? You know, healthy scratch, but man, he has been a very underwhelming player. He scored his fifth. Tukarski made 32 of 35 saves and the shots were 40 to 35 in favor of the Buffalo Sabres. Three games in a row that they outshot the opponent. Great to see. We love, We I don't know why we like that stat so much because it doesn't always mean something, but most times it does. And I, I love to see it. I mean, I think it shows a little bit more of the effort, shows a little bit more of the rebounds and that you're able to get shots through. So I, I do like it as a stat a lot and three games in a row that you're coming out on top. I think it's awesome to see Olaf. You can definitely tell that not only is he back, but, I mean, his two goals that he got in this game were just vintage Olofsson just sitting on that right side, just those one-timer slap shots that he is just pinpoint accurate with and just blows it right by the goalie every single time. He is just absolutely incredible, and to see him, I believe he's now fourth on the team in points, even with a 30-goal drought, and to see him get to 20 goals as well, just really good for his confidence, really good for his development. I think you're finally seeing him. I know it's late in the season, but... I think he's finally healthy and really showing you the kind of player he can be when he is healthy and kind of moving forward with his development. Yeah, to talk about him, he, with his 20 goals now, there's four 20-goal scorers for the Buffalo Sabres for the first time since the 2017-2018 season when they had Jack Eichel, Sam Reinhart, Evander Kane, and Ryan O'Reilly do it. So it's, it's also nice to see that, you know, 
in a time where the Buffalo Sabres, yes, are struggling in the standings, but they're coming alive late in the season that you have four reliable guys that could put the puck in the back of the neck and back in the net. And like you said, having Olofsson go in that huge goal drought and still end up with 20 goals, you can definitely tell that that wrist injury was something that was hampering him like crazy because he has come alive since Granado said, yeah, he's back to 100%. It was a wrist injury. Since then, it, he's his stats are unbelievable. It's, it's another reason why we were saying you cannot trade Victor Olofsson right now when his value is at the bottom, the very bottom. It'll be very interesting to see what they do with him in the offseason now where his value will be at the highest it's ever been. And he's going to in into an RFA season. Are they willing to pay him? Is he the type of player they want on this team moving forward? You know, there's a lot of questions on his game and what type of player is he going to be on this team moving forward? And is there a spot for him? And I think that's going to be a big talking point for us in the offseason and what to do with Victor Olofsson. And I think with the amount that we've seen Buffalo Bills influence uh, with the Sabres recently with McDermott being behind the bench with Granado and coaching. And then you saw Josh Allen at the game and, you know, meeting all the players and everything. I think that's something that the Bills have done really, really well is kind of draft players, keep them around. And when their contract comes up, you know, you you pay them because you want them to be part of this team. You want them to be part of that culture. I think Olsen's been a player that's been here long enough, but at the same time, I think he wants to be part of this future. I think the team around him likes him. I mean, when he finally got that goal and got that, you know, first goal after 30 games, the whole team was kind of, you know, just cheering for him so much. I think he's just a huge part of this team and they have the money. Like there's absolutely no reason that you cannot pay him, you know, what he deserves to make after this season. I know that 30 goals, I mean, maybe that's something you can kind of, those 30 games without a goal, it's maybe something you can kind of, talk his price down a little bit and maybe you get something a little bit more reasonable, but I don't think there's any reason that this team shouldn't go out and pay him and Tage Thompson. And I think that's something that you're just kind of looking for with the Sabres is keeping your own players long-term. And I hope that's something that this organization kind of pays up to a little bit more than those constant bridge deals we saw with all these other players and just not willing to commit to those guys. I mean, what kind of like what kind of message are you sending to those players like Reinhardt who kept getting those bridge deals that, you know, you just don't want to commit to that player being on this team long-term. Well, why not? You know? So I hope that this new kind of organization and the way that they're building, I hope it's similar to the bills where they want these guys who have been here that were drafted by the team. I hope that they want them around long-term and that they kind of get these guys, their three, four five year deal contracts and not these one or two years to, you know, keep forcing them to prove it and not really showing that you want them or that loyalty means as much as it should. Yeah. The last thing I want to add in this one before we can close it out was Rasmus Dahlin hit the 50 point mark. And it's the first time a defenseman for the Buffalo Sabres has done that since the 95, 96 season when Gary Galley did it. And to go that long without having one of your defensemen that you had back there. I mean, you had some really talented players back there. You had Tyler Myers for the longest time, Rasmus Sersalainen. Yes, he was not the best defender, but he was always providing this points back there. You had Jay McKee, you had Tempo Newman, and all those kind of guys back there that had the possibilities of getting 50 points, and he's the first one since the 95-96 season. It's just incredible to me. And the fact that, you know, he he struggled early part in the season when we were on this podcast saying, you know, Darlene's got to step it forward. He's got to start doing producing more points and doing more things in this game. It's it's 
I'm, I'm very impressed with how he has turned around this season. And I think it corresponds with what Alex Tuck, when Alex Tuck came back into the lineup and what he brought to the locker room. And I'm not saying it unlocked Rasmus Dahlin at all, but those two players, when, when Rasmus Dahlin takes off and Alex Tuck comes back, they kind of clash with, you know, when his reemergence into this lineup and his talent kind of shined. Yeah, and I think it's, again, he's only 22. He came into the league very young, and I know he's put a lot of, you know, NHL games underneath him at this point, but he's still a very young player. He's still learning a lot. So for him to hit a milestone like that this early in his career, I think it's great for his development. And again, we talked about it all year because it's kind of just what we have to talk about right now, but it's great for the Sabres' future that uh, he's, you know, hitting these milestones. I think it's just another thing that builds his confidence. I know that's something he was struggling with personally for a while, in the Sabres organization was just his own confidence of, you know, knowing when to join the rush, knowing when to play defense, you know, knowing when to, you know, make certain plays. And he just wasn't confident in himself. I think Renato himself has unlocked a lot of that in Darlene. I think this season, and especially that kind of milestone, I think that's great for the player and moving forward for his own future. So with this win, the team moves to 29, 38, and 11 on the season. They have four more games left, Phil. They they are in New Jersey next Thursday, so we will not have a game to cover on our next show yet because, again, they're playing as we're recording. But I think on our next show, we're going to want to talk about what we want to see and possible, you know, things that the players individually can do and what we want to see out of some players maybe possibly achieve in the statistics category in the next four games that the Buffalo Sabres have. And I, it's incredible to me that we're, you know, when we were in like game 30, game 35, game 40, and I'm sitting there thinking, man, can this game, can this season just like wrap up? Because this is, the games are interesting to watch, but you know, I'm just ready for the season to be over. Now I'm itching for next season to come in and I want to see what they do in the off season. I want to get back to October and see what this team can do next year. It's, they have me, I've been fooled before, Phil. I've, I've said it before where the Buffalo Sabres just find a way to pull me back in. Cause they were my first love when I was like three years old watching this team play. But they have a way of just drawing you back. No matter what happens, they just find a way to just pull you back in. And hopefully this is not the same thing that has happened 11 straight years where, hey, I'm excited for the offseason. I think this team can move it to the next level. I really, really deep down inside of me think that this is the team that can break the drought and get back to the playoffs. And I think they're going to be in playoff contention next year. Yeah, like you said, I mean, going into the season – We didn't really know what to kind of expect. I mean, all we were really hoping for was some kind of development, some kind of hope for the future, some kind of push for the future. But at the same time, I think, you know, deep down, we kind of knew that, you know, everyone kind of said this rebuild was going to take another two, three, four years before the Sabres really had any chance of being contenders. And all of a sudden, heading into March of this season and now April, you're playing very, very good teams that are on playoff pushes and trying to fight for standings. And the Sabres are not only keeping up with them, but beating a lot of them. And again, you just have such a young team and you have so many players that even aren't even on this team that are playing for Rochester right now that might be on the team next year. You have, you know, a little bit of money that you can plug in some of these gaps. And like you said, like they just they pulled us right back in. We didn't really expect a lot from this team this year. We didn't expect them to do much even heading into next year. But all of a sudden, you're looking at this team, and I feel like with their ability to hang in a lot of these games and beat a lot of these top teams, it just you know shows that they have the ability to possibly make playoffs next year. And that's something I don't think heading into this season we would have ever thought we were saying. 
So we'll move on to our BSC update. In game 79, you put up seven points. I put up two and a half. In game 77, you put up six points. I put up eight and a half. And then this is the one that kind of extended my lead a bit here, Phil. You put up nine and a half points in game 78. I put up 23. How did you get 23 points in a single Sabres game? That would be two and a half from Cousins, four and a half from Skinner, seven from Tage Thompson, four and a half from Darlene, and four and a half from Samuelson. What an incredible game. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I drafted the team myself, and I made the moves myself. But, <sighs> Bill, do you have any flames. changes to your BSC team you would like to make? No, Owen Power got his uh, first assist, and Olaf is firing on all cylinders, so we'll, we'll keep it going. Tuck's been doing pretty well. My team's doing okay. You know, they're just that's fair, they're doing yeah. okay. That's all. That's that all is, I got. That, that's all. I got. <laughs> that's a good comment. They are doing okay. But yeah, in our next show, we'll kind of go over what we would like to see out of the Sabers for the remaining four games because there is not a game we're going to be covering for them. So we will move on to the Buffalo Bisons. Phil, I'm sorry, but Josh Palacios, where we did say it on our last episode, we have not seen anything from him. He was claimed by the Nationals. Hint, hint. We are facing their affiliate Rochester right now. Well, we just did with the Buffalo Bisons, that is. So uh, he, he he's made some news <laughs> and uh, on a game we're going to be covering. But we'll move on to Thursday's game, which they were playing as we were recording. They won 10-1. to Lawrence went six innings pitched of one run ball. Beasley, Sacito, and Gage closed out the remaining three innings. Taylor shined in this one with his first AAA home run, which came in Grand Slam fashion with a... Uh, which came in a six-run fifth inning. Capra, Large, and Marino all chipped in two RBIs in this one each. Yeah, it was a huge win. Lawrence continues his strong start once again. You you kind of seeing that veteran presence on this team. He was, you know, the the I guess we'll say undecided ace of last season because I still refuse to give that up. But he is looking great to start this season. We weren't really sure coming into this year what he was going to be. Was he going to be? Early last season, Lawrence, who struggled quite a bit, or end of season, Lawrence, who looked like the ace of this team, and he's he's coming out real strong. And then to you know, like you said, put up 10, 10 runs in this one, and then we were kind of hoping the offense would get clicking, and a grand slam will uh, do that. And if it's <laughs> if it's your first AAA home run and you're hitting a grand slam, that's got to feel really really good and just a really solid win. Yeah, I think the the offense did come out to play in this one based on the ten runs scored. But when you guys when you got players like Capper, Marino, Large, Tally, Warmoth that are all hitting great up in the up in the AAA level right now, it, I think it's I think it's a huge indication that yes, can this pitching staff dominate? Most of the times. They're probably not going to, but they can keep you in the games. If this offense can keep hitting the ball like they are right now, I think that's a great indication of how this Buffalo Bisons team is going to be moving, moving forward into the future. So, Phil, we'll move on to Friday's game. This was the doubleheader from the rained out Wednesday game. So each one of these are seven inning games. They won game. I'm sorry. They lost game one, three to two. Bisons jumped out to a two nothing lead to start the game where Rochester would Win in a, in a double in the bottom of the seventh inning. Francis started this one going four innings pitch of and allowing two runs, striking out seven. So his his ball was moving and they were swinging and missing. Bash came in in relief and took the loss, allowing the game winning run. Capra had hit his second of the year to give the Bisons the two nothing lead that they would soon lose. I mean, we just talked about how great the offense was, and then they go out and put just two runs. Uh, <laughs> That's baseball. That yeah, is that, baseball. That is 100% <laughs> baseball. And 
good to see Francis get another pretty solid start underneath him. I mean, four innings, only allowing two, striking out seven. That's a, a very quality opening start. We'll have to keep a close eye again as far as the the Bisons go for allowing their starting pitching to go four, five, six innings. It seems something that we kind of kept a close eye on last season kind of indirectly. It wasn't something we meant to keep an eye on, but all of a sudden we were looking at the starters really only going four innings. I don't know if that's something that is just AAA based where they just don't want to burn out their starters in case they are needed in the big leagues, or if that's something that these pitchers just are not going deep into games. But I mean, even in this one, four innings, only allowing two, striking out seven, like why wouldn't he be allowed to go five, six innings? So it is something I think we should kind of keep a loose eye on because it's just a very interesting point for AAA baseball. Yeah, I think it might also be a factor where the bullpens are just larger in AAA as well, and you don't want to burn out the arms, like you said. And he was up to 74 pitches, so that that is something to watch. But usually when they get around 100 in the bigs is right. usually when you're looking to pull him. But for this one, I think the hitting just dried up. We only had four guys in running posi- or, uh, scoring position, which is second, third base. For those that don't know, if you're just listening to this, just to, you know, you're interested in possibly Buffalo Bison. So having only four guys reach base in scoring position, I think hurt them. And I, I th- they did leave six guys in base, but we'll go with a positive here. Smod Taylor, Went two for three, run scored, and his fifth stolen base of the year. I I think he's more solidifying his role here in AAA. Even when Otto Lopez comes back, I think Samad Taylor is slowly, you know, earning his role in AAA level, and hopefully he's here to stay, and it's not just a temporary one until your boy Lopez comes back. Yeah, I've actually been really enjoying what he's been able to do, and he goes, you know, it, it's not only just his hitting, but he's getting a lot of walks. He's not really striking out too much. I know early on with the first couple of games his average really wasn't there but he's still getting on base and then he's doing what he does best which is steal those bases and really just kind of play the small ball that I love to watch and I think he's definitely a player that has played multiple positions already for this team so I could see him being a little bit more of a utility guy staying on this team because he is off to a very good start for them. So Friday game two this was the makeup game from Wednesday they won this one nine to four thanks to an eight run third inning just incredible Anderson started this one going four and one third of an inning allowing four Vasquez Sparker finished the remaining two and a half or two and two thirds of an inning without allowing another hit Marino Talley and Smith all added two RBIs of their own in the third inning themselves it was just an incredible inning every time I looked at my phone it was another run scored and it was just a great overall game and a nice bounce back game from the game one that they lost just earlier that day that's an inning that's almost hard to stay focused no matter who you are either the defense or the offense I mean eight runs in one inning that's pretty much your entire batting through the order and that does not happen all that often in baseball for one inning that you're batting through the entire order so even as the offensive team getting all those runs, I mean, yeah, it's great, but at some point it's kind of hard to stay focused that you're still in that one inning. So credit to them, eight runs is impressive. And then from there, I mean, you're obviously just kind of on cruise control. I know, you know, you can kind of look at the other team being able to do the same thing against you if you just did it to them. But I think after eight runs, you're kind of just putting in cruise control the rest of the game and just kind of uh, cruising that victory. But Really good start by Anderson again. I mean, allowing four and four is not incredible. It's not a great ERA, but I don't think it's a brutal start. Again, it's pretty early in the season for these starters. And I just don't think other than Lawrence, we've really seen too many of the starters truly step up and just be throwing, you know, gem after gem. So 
I think it's a it's a decent start, one that I think he'll have to build on, but still not a bad start. Yeah, in this one, it, it was the bats came to alive in this one compared to the game one in this one. It, it, I mean, everybody reached base, and six of the nine reached base multiple times. So the bats came alive. Anderson did give them enough to get them in. I mean, the, he had 86 pitches through four and a third. So it's not the super deep one that you want to get in, especially in a double header like that. But having the ability to bring in guys like Vasquez and Sparker to come in and just shut down and, you know, in the eight remaining outs, to strike out five of the eight, it's just incredible what you can do in that bullpen. And Vasquez being 2-0, and having a zero ERA coming in and leaving with a zero ERA. He's a nice guy that they brought up from AA that is coming to shine and can be a more reliable guy. Like we said, uh, Candell is just trying to figure out what his bullpen is going to be and what guys he can rely on. And early on in the season, you can pretty much put a stamp on yourself as, hey, I can be that guy that you can rely on in the bullpen to come in when you need me to get some outs late in the games and I want to be that guy so give me the ball and I think April and May is the time that you can you know prove your worth in that bullpen yeah I think it's again early on in spring I think it's something where the the pitchers really aren't stretched out yet it's something that they take a little bit longer to kind of go deeper into games so it's definitely a time you're leaning on your bullpen a little bit more and it's a good time to figure out like you said who you can rely on the most kind of moving forward for the rest of the season so Saturday, Phil, this one was a very high-scoring game. Hopefully you took the over in your bettings. They lost 11-10. to This game saw the Bisons jump out to a 4 nothing lead in the first, only to see Rochester at a 5-spot of their own in the bottom of the first, then a 4-spot in the third inning. Bisons added 5 of their own in the 8th to cut it down to 1 when Large had a bases-loaded walk to tie it in the ninth. This is where old friend Josh Palacios, no, you do not get any points for this in your BSC game, won the game for Rochester in a game-winning single. Algary was not himself in this one whatsoever after two great starts. He lasted just three innings, allowing nine runs in this one. He's ERA spiked like you think it would. Isert, Biagani, Johnston each covered two in, or I'm sorry, one and two-thirds of an inning each, and they gave way to Gage, who took the loss Warmoth joined the Grand Slam fun in this one with one of his own in the top of the first. Yeah, it's definitely something you want to see from your offense, not something you want to see from your starting pitching. Gary, I mean, he had two really, really great starts. I mean, obviously he was pitcher of the week and he just was off to an incredible start. And then to allow nine runs in three innings, that is just a brutal outing. And so hopefully it's something he can just kind of throw away and come back with next game and just kind of go back to what he did the first two games. But this was just... Absolutely not the start you want to see from him. And then Palacios getting that game-winning hit. It's got to feel amazing for a player that's kind of ditched from one organization, picked up by another, and then you immediately kind of get that reward, especially when it's against your old team that, you know, you just kind of walked across the field to uh, the other team, put on a jersey, and then won the game for them. It's got to feel great for him. But great job by the offense in this one. I mean, Warmoth getting a grand slam in the first. That's a great way to start it. But kind of what we just said in the last game where, you know, that eight run third, it's something that if you did it to them, they can do it to you. I mean, it's a really good way to start the game, but it's something that you have to kind of keep your foot on the pedal. And I mean, 10 runs is still an incredible job by the offense, but the pitching and the bullpen just were not there in this one. Yeah, I mean, Algary went from a point six eight, I believe, ERA. Now it ballooned to 6.43. So that's what one bad start can get you. And hopefully that's another reason why having such 
deep bullpens in the minor league level here is such beneficial because you blew through four guys after just having a doubleheader the day before and you were hoping that your starter Algary could go deep since she is your quote-unquote ace this year just having the opening day start but yeah the, the offense came alive in this one Warmoth getting his second of the year and a grand slam with three on and two outs it was it's similar to what Smot Taylor did the day before where it, there was two outs and he hit a home run so they went six for eight with or six for 18 with runners in scoring position that's not a bad average but like you said on the other side Josh Palazzo's goes three for four with a home run in the first of his own which was a three-run shot he had a stolen base he had the game-winning run so seeing the guy that you just DFA'd for the the Toronto Blue Jays and yes it wasn't the Buffalo Bisons but it still hurts seeing him come out and have such a great day it definitely stings as a Buffalo Bisons fan yeah I mean it was one that you and I were a little confused about with the decently strong start he had to the season that they would pick him to DFA out of all the other players and to see him then, like you said, just three for four with a home run and a game winning single. It just kind of makes you wonder even more. I know it, you know, triple A and especially baseball with kind of the depth that gets a little confusing as to why certain players are picked. Obviously, they have their reasons, but it was one that, you know, we were a little kind of shocked to see him DFA'd and we were kind of hoping that he would return to the Bisons that no one pick him up. But for him to be picked up, put on the other team that you're playing and to have that good of a game, it just it kind of stinks, like you said. So Sunday, the final game, they could win the series here, but they did not. They split at 3-3. They lost 8-1. The team falls to 7-5 in this young season. Hatch lasted just four and two-thirds of an inning, allowing eight earned runs on seven hits. Beasley and Cecito came in to close out the rest of the game, just allowing one more hit. Large had the only RBI in this one. Yeah, Hatch is off to a brutal start to the season. He's had two not-so-great outings. This one is just really bad. I mean, not quite to the Algary level that we just saw, but just still not very good. He's got to really get some things corrected and hopefully quickly. And again, your offense just disappeared. So, I mean, you know, when you when your <laughs> pitching isn't there, your offense isn't there, that's kind of how you end up with an A1 score. Really good to see the team still over 500 at 7-5, and five, but hopefully they can correct some things moving into this next series. But overall, not not a bad series against Rochester, but definitely some things in the young season that you got to fix and hopefully get better with. Yeah, it's definitely something that you want to keep an eye on is the starting rotation because the, the bullpen is top-notch. The, the lineup itself seems to be very good, but the, the, the starters... Are, are something to be more desired and that's something that you're going to want to see more out of moving forward and hopefully that these guys can either get it adjusted or there's some guys in double a that are kind of shining that can move up to the triple a level as well but if if your starters are the weakest spot of your team right now it's a little scary because they're the guys that you rely on most of the games to kind of get you to that next stop next stop and having them struggle as much as they have been so far this year besides you know a couple starts by Anderson a handful of by Lawrence and then the first two by Elgary it's it's uh it's going to be definitely interesting to track the rest of the season is how that how those starters do moving forward okay so we'll go over the BSC update here for game eight I put up, I'm sorry, you put up seven points. I put up 17 and a half. Thank you, uh, Lawrence. And thank you, Moreno. For game nine, you put up five points. I put up one and a half. For game 10, you put up a giant zero spot. I put up five points. 
For game 11, I put up two and a half points. I put up, I'm sorry, you put up two and a half points. I put up 16 and a half. Thank you, Warmoth, and that Grand Slam. And then for game 12 that just happened, you put up minus seven and a half points. Thank you, Thomas Hatch. And then I put up three and a half. So that is how the lead has ballooned to over 300 for favor of me, Phil. So do you have any changes to your team that you would like to make for the BSC Bisons? Yeah, I mean, I would love if uh, those Palacios you know, points counted toward me and, uh, let me check the rule book. Uh, no, they don't (sighs) nuts. (laughs) So yeah, I'm going to have to remove him from my team. I've been going back and forth as far as two players I wanted to add. I really wasn't sure which one I like them both. So it it hurts a little bit to, you know, pick one or the other, but I am going to see, uh, what Samad Taylor can do for my team with his, five stolen bases and he is just off to a a pretty good start and I think he's really starting to pick up and I I do think he's going to be part of this team even with Lopez coming back I've seen him play multiple positions including the outfield so I do think they're going to find a spot for him so hopefully he can uh, get my team back on track yeah I had that written in before you know even said who it was I I I knew I think I knew the other player as well but I'm glad that it was Smod Taylor that you added in I, on the other hand, I'm going to be dropping Anderson. I'm going to be adding a relief pitcher. I'm going to see how that goes. I'm going to be adding what I believe is their closer in uh, in Johnston. I want to see how that reliever adds to the scoring system right now because I think we'll probably have to make adjustments down the road. But like we said, this is the first year of it. We're making adjustments. So hopefully next year we can try to get some of the fans and the listeners in. But uh, it's it's a weird scoring system for the pitchers right now that we're still trying to work through. So I'm going to add a reliever in Johnson and see how that works out for me. Yeah, because early on, not knowing exactly how this is going to go, it seems like the baseball could get way, way too many points. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're going to have to... <laughs> we'll we'll see how it works through April and May and make adjustments as we need to. But yeah, it's uh, it's it's fine-tuning and something that we've never done. So, you know, we're, we're, we're playing and adjusting on the fly here. Yeah, seeing you put up double-digit points when knowing how many games that they have left, uh, that's it could be problematic for the, uh, it could be, yes. the rest of the, the leagues that we play with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll have to figure it out moving forward. But the next series that the Buffalo Bisons have is against Scranton Wilkesbury, New York Yankees affiliate. Some of their top prospects you're going to be wanting to watch out for, and there's quite a handful of them. Oswald Peraza, he is the shortstop. He rose from triple, or I'm sorry, from single A plus to triple A last year. He's the number two guy in their system. Hayden Wisniewski, right-handed relief pitcher, he is number eight in their system. He also rose from A plus to triple A last year. So two guys that rose very quickly through the system. Luis Gill, right-handed pitcher. He's number 10 in the system. He pitched a lot in the big leagues last year. He went one for one with a 307 ERA in six starts. Oswaldo Cabrera, he's an infielder, number 14 in the system. He played the majority of his time in AA last year, hitting 256 with 24 home runs and 78 RBI. So do not let that ball go anywhere near the plate where he can hit it. Devi Garcia, who was their top prospect last year. He has fallen a lot. He's 29 in the system now. He was the once highly touted right or right-handed pitcher like we said he went three for seven last year with a 6.85 era in triple a and then stefan florial he is another highly touted prospect similar to garcia he's an outfielder number 30 in the system he hit just 218 in triple a last year so two guys that have fallen two guys that have risen through the league and uh, a guy who had 
great hitting in double A last year and Luis Gill who had some opportunities with the big league club so a lot of mixed bag with your prospects for the the Scranton Wilkes-Barre Rail Riders yeah it's, it's something that I think we've seen a few times now with even you know the Bisons and now the Yankees and the Nationals that you're seeing a lot of these top prospects in the system are lower level guys and I think that's something that kind of goes along with just how the system works that these players that are a little bit more unproven have a little bit higher stock because you just don't know what their potential is. Whereas guys like Garcia and Florial, who have now been around for a little while and just are starting to, you know, I guess we'll say not pan out quite as, you know, what they thought they could be drop a ton in the system. But those are the guys that are a little bit more mature and might be on the AAA team. So I think it's something that's just interesting that we're learning, you know, kind of through baseball that AAA doesn't always have, the guys who are next ready to go up or, you know, necessarily the top prospects in the entire organization, because those guys are often a little bit lower in the system because they just have that potential because it's a little bit more unproven where the guys at AAA could be a little bit older and a little bit, you know, fallen off the rankings as far as prospects go. But I think Scranton Wilkes-Barre is one of the top teams last year. I think their farm system's a little bit weaker this year and just is not quite what it used to be, but it's still a tough team and still going to be a great series for the Bisons. Yeah, Scranton's coming in five and six. They've allowed or they've allowed fifty three runs. They've scored forty six. For Buffalo, on the other hand, is seven and five. They scored fifty eight runs. They've allowed forty eight. So it's it's pretty similar. But I guess we'll see how this goes. And like we said, it's baseball, so it's a mixed bag, and you never know what player is going to come out that night and which performance is going to stand on its head and, and take shape. But Bandits are only two games. I'm sorry. The Bisons are only two games out of first place right now with, uh, with the Boston affiliate Worcester. So uh, Norfolk is right ahead of them and they're tied with Rochester right now. So it's, it's a close race, but like we said, it's, it's only the beginning of April. There's a ton of games to go, but it's a, it's a nice start for the Buffalo Bisons right now. So, Phil, we will move forward to our final segment. Like we said, our draft coverage is going to slowly roll out here, and we're going to start that with, you know, what positions we would like to see the Buffalo Bills address come draft time, which is coming up very soon in just 10 short days. It's going to be the 28th of April, which is just about a week and a half away. So, Phil, I guess what's your number one position of need right now with the Buffalo Saber, or with the Buffalo Bills that you would like to see them address in the draft? You know, we've heard you mix up the the Bills, Bandits, and Bisons, but you can't it's be you can't be throwing the Sabers in there. You know, that's that's the the one S team. All right, we can't. We can't. Yeah, I know it's all over the place right now, right? <laughs> um, so my first one, it's a little bit interesting, I guess, and it all depends in the draft as to what you know talent position falls and what is still there when it's their turn to pick. It's something that the Bills fans have slowly gotten used to over the last couple of seasons, but something that we're not normally used to, which is picking a little bit later in the first round. Normally we're, you know, messing around with some of those top 10 picks and it's a little bit different, but, you know, being later in the first round, you have to wait until things drop. But for me, and again, it's need is a, I guess, a bad way to put it at the same time. It's a good way to put it, but for me, it's possibly linebacker. If one of the top two is there and you think that he could be, the linebacker of the future, because I just do not see the Bills bringing Edmonds back next season. I just don't see how they make it work with their salary cap. I know Bean is a wizard, but I think it's more a, you know, philosophy is the wrong way to put it, but just putting that much money with Milano and Edmonds, I just don't see them tying up that much money with just the two linebackers. So I think you're going to need a rookie linebacker to step into that position, whether it's this year or next year. So 
I would like to see them kind of target linebacker. I think there's two top linebackers in the draft, and if one of them is there for that first pick, I would like to see them go with it this year so we can learn from what is there and maybe even start taking over this year and then kind of push Edmonds out. I don't know if that's a bad locker room move, but I think if you draft one of them, I think Edmonds might have to leave You know, this season. But either way, it's a position I think you have to look into either this year or next year. Yeah, for my top position of need that I think the Buffalo Bills naturally need to address is cornerback, and I think it's because there's not really a locked-in number two guy opposite of Tredavious White, and yes, Tredavious White should be back in time, but that that injury also is a bit concerning that there's not a ton of updates, so I would like them, them to address cornerback very early in this one, either in the first round, which is what I'm hoping for if one of these top cornerbacks falls to him, or at least in the second round. I think that's at least, they're going to go cornerback either one or two in this draft is what my guess is. I know Jane Jackson is there. He, he had a very good year last year, and Levi Wallace is out the door. Maybe it's because they feel like Dane Jackson is is ready to step into that role. But since Sean McDermott has been here, he has not had that second go-to cornerback, and he has gotten away with it for as long as amount of time as he can because the safeties are back there. If 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 this is the last year of Jordan Poyer on the Buffalo Bills, which I'm hoping it's not, they can work out a contract extension. But those two safeties cover that side of the field and can you know make do with just average Joe's guys over there. Not saying that Dane Jackson and Levi Wallace have been average Joe's, but a, a guy that's not your prototypical second number two cornerback over there, they can cover for those errors because they're just so dynamic back there. Jordan Poyer's not back there coming into the 2023 season. You might see more of a glaring issue over there on cornerback two. So that's the one. If I were to say that there's a need on this team right now, it's cornerback two because there's just a hole over there. Yeah, for me, that is my second position. I'm guessing our lists are going to end up pretty similar because, I mean, we kind of feel pretty similar about what the Bills' holes are. But for me, cornerback dropped to the second need. And again, it's only if linebacker ends up falling. If one of those top guys falls to the Bills, I think that it's a little bit more pressing just in the way that I don't know what you do with Edmonds for the future. He could be still here this year. I mean, I don't think you're 100% sure if they draft a linebacker first, but I do think cornerback two is a big need. Like you said, pretty much everything you just mentioned, but I think having a lockdown corner on both sides, especially if white does return back to his position. And especially with the way the league is going with being, you know, much more of a passing centric league. I think it's great to have two young cornerbacks who are just lockdown corners. So if you could have another elite cornerback opposite of white, I think that'd be huge for the bills. Yeah, my number two is wide receiver, just on the fact that I think this is their second biggest need right now, and uh, quote-unquote need, but outside of Stephon Diggs and Gabe Davis, do you know who the third outside wide receiver right now on the field right now is for the Buffalo Bills? Uh, no. It's Isaiah Hodgins. That would be the guy that you would have to rely on if Stephon Diggs or Gabe Davis goes down. I am not ready. I like Isaiah Hodgins. I know you do too, but I am not ready to have him on the outside of this offense Is if Stefan Diggs or Gabe Davis goes down. I think he has potential, but I'm not ready. I think they need to draft another guy. They can do what they did with Gabe Davis and slowly bring him along, where in two years, if Gabe Davis has maxed out and is ready to test for agency because you just don't have the room to sign him because you're just signing everybody, or he just, you know, there was a it was a fluke playoff game. I don't think it is. I think he has talent beyond what he has shown so far, but 
there's really nobody on the outside beyond those two. I think you need to draft another guy in the first two rounds and add him to the collection of wide receivers talent that you have right now. Because remember, they haven't replaced Emmanuel Sanders on the outside right now. They just haven't done it. They've replaced Cole Beasley with Jamison Crowder on the inside, but they have not addressed what Sanders has left out there. And that's a number of targets. Yes, I think that's going to be spread between Jamison Crowder, Stefan Diggs, and Gabe Davis. But who is that other outside guy? And I think they're going to address that early in the draft is is another outside wide receiver. So that is my my third priority was wide receiver, which again seems, I guess, a little strange from a fan standpoint because you do have Gabe Davis, you do have Stefan Diggs, you do have Jamison Crowder, you do have Isaiah McKenzie. So you have plenty of weapons. You do have Dawson Knox. Now you have <laughs> Howard as well. You have a ton of passing weapons. But at the same time, like you said, not only for just depth in case someone goes down, but you know, moving forward, this team's going to get very expensive very quick once Allen's contract, you know, kind of kicks in. I know every single year the salary cap goes up, so hopefully Bean can continue to figure out how to make it work. But Gabe Davis, toward the end of his rookie deal, could end up being priced out if he has a monster year. Hopefully, you know, I don't want to say hopefully he doesn't have a monster year, but hopefully he does not get priced out because I do like him quite a bit, so I'd love him to be around long term. But it's just it is another position you're going to want to have a little bit more depth and just have another building block. But as far as wide receiver build goes, what do you what are you looking for in a wide receiver as far as like what you know, what prototype kind of prototypical wide receiver would you like to see the Bills go after? I think I would like to see more speed on the outside. Gabe Davis and Stefan Diggs, they they Davis has more of that battle for the ball upside and he can beat some wide receivers but he doesn't have that elite speed I would like them to see if they can draft a guy who's maybe like 6'3 that runs like a 4'4 that can play the outside yes you have some speed on the inside with Isaiah McKenzie Diggs is just an elite route runner and I I think that's why he signs the deal he did because he's not going to break down as much as like a speedster guy does but I think they still lack that explosive wide receiver on the outside and I think if they can get somebody out there that can you know give Diggs and Davis a breather that can just burn a guy you can take it that nice little screen pass down the field or just beat your cornerback down the field and Josh Allen can just air it out to him that's what I'm looking for it's just a speed guy on the outside yeah I think it's a little unfair to to say that we want it all but I think yeah speed and height I think are are what you're kind of looking for it doesn't have to be like you said Gabe Davis is that that kind of big wide receiver he does have speed but he's more of your jump ball more of your toe tapping on the sideline that we've seen tons and tons of times from him already in his young career but he's more of your just big body wide receiver that on crossing routes Allen can just hit him right in the chest and he's going to catch it and like you said Diggs is a route runner Isaiah McKenzie does have speed but it's a little bit more inside speed so I would like to see someone who's just straight up outside speed but a little bit bigger because I think we had you know John Brown for a little while and that was kind of his position even Sanders that's been a little bit more of his position as well but both of those guys are a little bit on the smaller side with their speed I'd like to see someone who's a little bit bigger and still has that speed just kind of for Allen just kind of lofted up to him especially when you have all these other routes running by these elite wide receivers and tight ends to see someone you know kind of just take a little crossing route or a screen like you said and just go go to the house. So my number three is offensive line and particularly a offensive guard. I think center's locked down for a while. I think your outside tackles are locked down for a while. You got Ryan Bates locked down for a while, but Roger Saffold's only signed a one-year deal. So Bates can play left left side or right side, so I don't think it's that important to draft a left or a right side guard. They can figure it out when he gets here, but I think spending a third or a fourth round pick on 
a, a offensive guard that you can develop behind Saffold for a year and they can fill in for him when he graduates next year. I, I think that's a very important thing. And having Aaron Cromer that has been known around the league to develop, you know, later round picks or, you know, guys that just come off the street into very solid rotational guys or just starters in the league. I think having Aaron Cromer here affords you the ability to draft a later offensive guard and develop him behind the guys that you currently have here because I think you have your starting five. I think you're just lacking that next guy up for the following year because Ryan Bates used to be that guy that could step into the, in the, the mix and just replace anybody on the offensive line. I think that's what you're missing right now is that next Ryan Bates guy that can step up. And I think drafting an offensive guard in the third or fourth round and having him develop with Aaron Cromer and behind this offensive line, I think is the next next hole that you got to fill. And I think that's what the Buffalo Bills are doing right now is, hey, not only are we looking to fill holes that we might have now, but we're also looking for the future years of guys that are coming up on their deal, guys that are aging out and trying to replace them. And I think offensive guard is the next position. I would love to disagree with you every once in a while, but I am going to agree once again. And I think it's something that we've seen the Bills do recently. Even the last draft with Spencer Brown in the third and then Tommy Doyle in the fifth. I mean, those are, again, offensive line. I think that's something that the Bills covet. And it's a position that it, it's hard to say that you can ever have enough, enough depth, especially young depth. I think it takes them a little bit longer to develop. I think those are... Players that, you know, again, offensive line takes a little bit longer, and it's something that you just want to have more of. And Saffold is 33. He's on a one-year deal. So for this particular season, I think your starting rotation is pretty locked in and looking really good. But as far as the future goes, it's something that you can never have enough of. And I think if they continue to find players on the offensive line that have that versatility, that can play multiple positions and continue to just kind of grow and develop, uh, behind some of these starters that they have this year. I think it's just something you can't have enough of and something that is definitely worth a third, fourth round pick to go after. So my number fourth is what your number one was, linebacker. It's Tremaine Edmonds is the reason for this. Is He's still on that last year of his deal, so what are you going to do? I'm not going to hit on it too much because you hit on it the most things, but you have not replaced A.J. Uh, Klein yet. You have Terrell Dodson that's probably going to step forward, and I know the Bills like him a lot, but you don't really have that next guy if Tremaine Edmonds is not your next, you know, middle linebacker for the future. If he's not going to sign that future deal, who's going to be that guy that you're going to address it? So I can see them, like you said, if a linebacker slips, I can see them drafting a linebacker in the top pick. But I I, I just don't think that's a big of a need right now in the draft. But I, I completely agree. If one slips is one of your top three linebackers that you just need and he's your top of your board and he's your linebacker, draft them. And then you don't then that issue with who is going to replace Tremaine Edmonds is not that big of a deal moving forward that you've got the next guy in the wings. But for me, it's just, I think based on everything that they've done in the offseason right now, I think Tremaine Edmonds is in in line for a, a, another deal come next year if he has another season where he takes another step forward. Remember, he's still super young. So I, I think yeah, I think you hit it uh, the nail on the head. If, if a linebacker slips, I think the Buffalo Bills take him. So my... My next spot here, I think I'm actually going to go running back, which I really don't know how to feel about in this offseason. I mean, it's it's kind of, again, it's something we've mentioned that for years and years now that we've kind of felt the exact same every single offseason where we're going into next season with a decent running back, someone that is not going to blow the doors off, but you're not a 
running team necessarily under then maybe Josh Allen, but Singletary did take a step forward. I think they're missing an RB2. I think Duke Johnson is an interesting fill-in for that, you know, kind of passing down role, but can they get another running back that is another, you know, kind of take a flyer on someone in your second, third, fourth, fifth round and see if they develop and see if you kind of just take a hit on one because I don't know if Singletary is necessarily the future. I don't think Duke Johnson is necessarily the future. So what what do they really have in running back is is pretty much very difficult to figure out every single offseason because you just don't have that number one elite running back. And I do agree that it's not a position you want to spend a lot in free agency for. So it's something that you pretty much have to continue drafting until you hit that guy. And I just don't see the Bills ever kind of using a first round pick on it. And again, saying that now it'll be the year that in the first round the Bills take a running back. But I just don't see them using a very early pick on a running back ever. So I think, you know, again, it's it's some of these middle rounds that you're going to see them try maybe a running back position to see if they can get a little bit later one to kind of hit and be your future guy. But it's just it's a position that's, I think, always going to be a little bit tantalizing until they find that true number one on running back. And I just don't even know if they're ever really going to be able to find that or if they're just going to kind of continue to plug and play for a long time. Yeah, I completely agree with everything you said, especially because come next year in 2023, the only guy under contract right now would be Zach Moss. So I think you're looking for that next guy if you can't re-sign Devin Singletary or he has another year like he did last year. But for my number five, my last one, it's going to be safety. With the uncertainty right now of Jordan Poyer, everything that's going on with his situation where he's looking for a contract extension, the Buffalo Bills seem like the, I would be inclined that they would want to get one done if he... If he can, you know, if they can come out to an agreement here, I think having him finish out his career here, he has not slipped whatsoever. Remember, he was kind of a late riser in that position where the Buffalo Bills took a shot on him when he was not a developed guy. He converted over from cornerback position to be a safeties too. So he does not have the mileage that a a guy of his age back there would have. So I think extending him to another two or three year deal, adding on to the year that he has right now is a smart move moving forward. But if they don't do it, safety is another another big you know, hole back there next to Micah Hyde, who has two more years left on his deal. So you drafted one last year. I can see them drafting another one, maybe like the fifth or sixth round. But again, if one falls to him in the first round, I think, and they take him, I think that's more indictment of what's going to happen next year with Jordan Poyer than if they were to take one in the fifth and sixth round as a flyer. So I, I guess we'll see moving forward what happens in that position. I think with the team they have, if moves like that start to happen, even with like linebacker, if they take that, I think it's kind of telling of what they want to do with yes. Edmonds and same with safety of what they want to do with Poyer. It's, it's, it's tough. You know, it's tough to see as a Bills fan. It's tough to see, I'm sure, for Brandon Bean because it is a business and you obviously cannot keep every player you want to keep no matter how hard you try and no matter how how good of a wizard that Brandon Bean is. It's just not possible to keep all of these players because if you have an elite team, you likely have elite talent that deserves elite money. And it, at some point, you're going to have to let some of these guys go. And it just, like you said, it's going to be very telling when, you know, this draft comes and you start to see some of these players drafted at a high position that it's, if it's not cornerback, if it's not wide receiver, if it's not running back, and it's some of these positions where there's already players established there, but you might see them pushed out because of their contract and they draft them in the first and second round, it'll be kind of interesting and a little bit, like you said, a little bit telling as to what the future might hold for some of these positions. And it could be a little bit scary and a a little bit depressing. (laughs) 
So, Phil, with that, is there anything else you would like to add to this episode before we close out a uh, more long-filled, fun-filled episode of the BSC? Um, I, I wish my BSC team would uh, perform a little better, but uh, I guess that's something. that That's another FPP, you know? <laughs> there you go. Another FPP, a future Phil problem. <laughs> So on our next show, we will cover you know more of the draft. We'll give you the top three choices we would like to see the Buffalo Bills do in the first round. We will go over some things that we would like to see out of the final four games of the Buffalo Sabres. We have nothing with the Buffalo Bandits, but we'll hit on some games that you want to keep an eye on across the NLL in, in terms of seeding. And then for the Buffalo Bisons, we'll have the first two games as long as they're not rained out. Fingers crossed they aren't against the Scranton Wilkes-Barre Rail Riders. So we don't have as much to cover on our next show, but it's going to be just as jam-packed as this one was. Hopefully shorter time for your ear holes to hear. But Phil, <laughs> happy Easter for you. Uh, hey, happy day after Easter, I should say. So go shopping for those discounted chocolates, the chocolate bunnies. Always. Uh, there you go. That's the perfect time to go shopping is not pre post and then give your loved ones the candy after because they're heavily discounted yeah the key is to celebrate all holidays the weekend after they happen 100 (laughs) percent, always cheaper always cheaper you save money there and you can spend it more and get more so thank you all for listening to another episode of the buffalo sports collective in partnership with revelry house Follow along with us on Facebook and Instagram at Buffalo Sports Collective and on Twitter at Buffalo Sports Co. Visit our website at buffalosportscollective.com. Subscribe to our channel wherever you listen to podcasts and make sure you leave us a review on Apple and Spotify. Just like always, until next time, bye bye